Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, thank you, Pastor Judy and the rest of the church administration for finding it fit to invite us to come and share with you on uh, loss and grief. But I want to start by saying this is not a easy topic. It is not something you can say somebody gets acquainted with or gets experience in addressing. But by the grace of God, I do believe that he is going to give us insights on how to utilize and tap in unto his unending grace so that we may find strength to continue moving on in our lives as we journey in this world. Uh, my family have been introduced, received greetings uh, from our pastor, Pastor Elijah Ngeve. Uh, I think uh, our firstborn daughter is behind there. And it is not uh, strange where she has sat uh, because uh, when you look at the lifestyle of uh, people as they grow and age, when we are born, we cling to our mothers and we like to be around them all the time. But as we continue to advance in years and in understanding the environment we are in, as our cognition grows up, we start to delink from our parents and start to connect with our peers. And so when we are talking about loss and grief, although in this particular instance, we want to talk more on the basis of uh, losing a loved one through death, you realize all of us, we mourn many things. Sometimes we wonder whether children really do mourn. Children mourn even the death of our pet, the destruction of our doll. And so, today, we are going to briefly look at the various uh, age cohorts and how we mourn. But before we do that, I'm going to read a scripture, an example of somebody who experienced deep sorrow and grief because of uh, multiple losses. We have several examples in the Bible. I've picked only two characters who are going to help us get some insights. In the book of Ruth, My laptop is taking its time to open. In the book of Ruth, we read the story of Naomi and our family. We see Naomi, the husband and two sons, are residents of Bethlehem. And there comes a time in Bethlehem, there is severe farming. And so people were moving out of Bethlehem looking for a better place to go and stay. As it happens with us. If you are in a given residence and things are not working out for you, you are likely to try your luck elsewhere. And so this family decides, let's move out 
and probably try our luck in Moab. And so they go to Moab. And when they get there, the sons of Naomi are sons who are of age. They marry. But as it were, the husband of Naomi dies. Then as calamity strikes, the two sons also die. We are not told the duration of uh, how long the deaths were apart. But the fact is, probably, before Naomi was through with mourning the death of the husband, probably one of the sons dies. And before she could understand what is happening around her, the other son dies. Naomi is in a foreign land. She does not have probably what we would call the social network of somebody to give her a shoulder to lean on. And Naomi is left with the two daughters-in-law who she does not know what to do with them. And as she continues to struggle in Moab, she gets some tidings, some news, that God has remembered Bethlehem and things have started to show up again. There is some good things happening in Bethlehem. And she decides to go back in Bethlehem. And she's persuaded that these daughters-in-law are too young to accompany her. They should be left in Moab and get other men to marry, to marry them. And one of the daughters accepts and goes away. But we see Ruth clinging unto Naomi. And they go back to Bethlehem. And I want you to take note of what happens when Naomi gets into Bethlehem. I'm assuming she gets through the gate and probably she is at the court where the elders would meet and those kind of things. And probably some women. So that is Naomi. And so they came running so that they can greet her. And they are calling her Naomi. And she's telling them, no, 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 no. You guys don't know what has happened to me. Don't call me Naomi anymore. My name now has changed. My name is bitterness because I am in anguish. I am bitter. We are not told how long it took from the time she lost these close relatives of us. According to her, probably, her world had come to an end. And so when she is being comforted by the women who knew her, she says, I do not want to be comforted because you guys do not know what I'm going through. And it happens with us. Sometimes people come and they tell you, oh, we are so much with you in whatever you are going through. We understand. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. Because their loss is not your loss. Their pain is not your pain. You might have gone through loss, yes. You might have experienced pain, yes. But how you experience pain and how I experience pain is very different. We stay in the same house with my wife. We are in the same bed. But how she experiences pain and how I experience pain is very different. And so, although we might be faced with the same loss, how we internalize and experience it, how we process it, is very different. Praise be to God. And so from this story of Naomi, I want us to see that this lady who has undergone multiple losses, she is acknowledging, yes, I am in such great pain. What can you people do to me? How can you help me overcome my pain? How can you help me? Because she seems to be asking for help. Probably she was going back to Bethlehem in shame. Because 
What will the people say? I left a fool. Now I've come empty. And that is what she says. I left a fool. I've come back empty. I thought I was going to prosper where I was going. And now I've come back and I'm empty. And so she is having safe blame. She's blaming herself. Probably she's saying, maybe I should have told my husband that we should not go. Maybe she's saying that she played a role in the death of her husband. Oh, yes, I prayed a role in the death of my children. That is safe blame. And it is very common when people are grieving. It is very common when people have undergone loss, especially of a loved one. I've said we undergo many losses. But because here we are talking about loss of people close to us, I want to restrict myself to that. This loss is so touching. It is so deep within us. And the processing it may not be as easy as we imagine. In the books we read, we are told that when you mourn and grieve for more than six months, it is pathological. But that is not the reality of life. In fact, one of the scholars who is quoted in the psychology circles, and incidentally, this scholar has a background which is Jewish. When he was talking about grieving loss, he says, this should be one year. And when somebody was uh, analyzing what this guy, Sigmund Freud, was saying, they commented that probably what Sigmund Freud is saying is influenced by his Jewish background, not by his learning. And I found that tremendous. Because in the Jewish culture, they were taking a whole year to grieve. When they lost somebody close to them, they were taking a whole year. Just the same way they would take a whole year to celebrate, like a marriage, they were taking a whole year to grieve somebody who they have lost. But now here we come, and we are putting legislations. We are saying now, oh, if you grieve for more than three months, it is abnormal. But we are different. And so people will start branding you. You have stayed so long in the valley of mourning. You need to rise up and go. Yes, you need to rise up and go. But have you dealt with the pain? Have you dealt with the anguish which comes with the loss? Incidentally, we are told that you cannot fully get into terms with loss. It will always be there lingering somewhere. But then, allow me to share with you the experience of another person in the Bible. And I am going to quote two types of losses which David is faced with. In the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verse 16. Let's read this one. Second Samuel 12, 16. Are you there? If you're having a digital Bible, you should be there. Is this what I wanted to read, really? Yeah, Second Samuel. 
Let's start from verse 15. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. Verse 16. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still, was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. So David gets Uriah's wife. The wife conceives. He arranges. Uriah is killed. And he takes over the wife. And he gets a message from the servant of God that what you did was wrong. And God is going to punish you. And he repents of his sin. And life goes on. A child is born. And the child gets sick. And probably many questions and thoughts are going through the mind of David. And he is pleading with God that the child may live. He is sorrowful when the child is sick. He is grieving the loss of health of his child. And he pleads with God. He fasts for seven days. And we are told on the seventh day, the child dies. And sometimes we find ourselves in a similar situation. We plead with God that a circumstance, a situation may change. Some of these circumstances, we are asking God to change are circumstances of life and death. It is a loved one who is hanging on the line. And we are pleading with God. But then, they may not make it. They die. How do we respond to that? David, we see, he sees his servants conversing. And the same way we would look at people who are discussing something serious probably about us, we get into a conclusion. And so David concludes, the way these servants are behaving, the child is dead. And so, David confronts them. Is the child dead? And they tell him, the child is dead. Yes, master, the child is dead. David rises up. He goes, takes a shower, refreshes himself. Gets into his house, sits down, and takes a nice meal. But that is David. That's not you. That's not Rankesh. That is David. We don't know what was happening from the time he heard the message from Nathan to the time the child died. But one thing here we see, David was in the presence of God. And probably 
David was drawing strength from God when all this was happening. And we say, or we see him saying, it is done. There is nothing much I can do now. Let me wash my face, apply some lotion, and move on with life. Because I was pleading for this child to live. But the suffering will of God, as it were, has prevailed. The child has died. And so David moves on. Another instance, David, now being a general of the, 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 the armies, he goes into the battlefield. He is with his soldiers and they are excited because they have won battles. They have won. And now they are celebrating and they are coming back home. They get to Ziklag and they get there and they see smoke. The whole place is burning. There is nobody. It has been looted. And they start to wail. These men who are tough, felian, soldiers in war, they sat down and they started to wail. They were crying. Probably some were crying and complaining. God, why has this happened to us? God, why did you let this happen? And so, because of the bitterness and the anguish of what had happened, these soldiers turned against David. They are like telling him, David, you are going to give us our wives, you are going to give us our sons, you are going to give us our daughters. Otherwise, we are going to stone you. It is documented that they were threatening to stone him. And so, David is in deep anguish. He does not know what to do. He does not know where to go. But God gives him some inspiration. And he calls the servant of God. He tells him, bring the herpod here and let me inquire of God. And he asks God, God. He did not ask God, why did this happen? He asks, he asks God, should I pursue them? Should I pursue them? And probably at times, when we are at our bottom, we may not have the right questions to ask God. So David asks God, should I pursue them? And God gives him the green light. And we know the rest of the story. You can read it from the Bible. He pursues and he overtakes them and they get back the wives and the sons and the daughters. And everybody is celebrating. Now let's see how different groups mourn briefly. Now allow me to start a bit far. When a woman conceives a child, they have their idealized child before the child is born. Hope you are getting that. When a woman gets pregnant, they have their ideal child in the womb before the child is born. And there is that attachment between the mother and the unborn child. And so, as a society, we may not understand. For us, it was a pregnancy which was lost. To the mother, it is a child who has been lost. You may not understand what is going in the life of this woman. She might not even see the fetus. But there is a mental image. And so, the same way, 
we who are in the physical would mourn the loss of a physical child, a mother who loses her pregnancy would go through the same turmoil. And remember, I said there is an aspect of safe blame. And this safe blame, if not addressed, will lead one to depression. Because they will become aloof. They want to stay alone. They want not to eat because of the emotional turmoil they are going through. Do infants and toddlers experience loss? Do they mourn? When somebody close to them goes away, how do they react? You realize here I've used the term, not death. When somebody close to them goes away. Because the world of an infant is different. Their conceptualization of what is going around them is very different from us. So their world is the things they see, the things they interact with in their environment. And that is why probably this might give us some understanding. When a young child is being left by the mother, they cling and they cry. Because to them, being out of sight means this person has really disappeared. And I'm all on my own. They do not understand the aspect of this person coming back. And so, when the person reappears again, they rejoice. Because in their mind, that person had left. Now, this gives us a bit of some understanding how we can intervene when a young child is left by somebody close to them, especially the mother. Now, remember, I'm using somebody close to them. Sometimes, as parents, we observe some behaviors and we are wondering, what has happened? A house help has left. This house help meant all the world to your child. And so, because they have lost somebody who is very close to them, their world has crumbled. And so, because of that, they start to behave in ways which we do not understand. In psychology, we say they regress. Maybe they had stopped bedwetting, they start to bedwet. Maybe they are aloof and they are crying a lot. Those kind of things. They are mourning the loss of somebody who was close to them. So for them, somebody going away, somebody dying, kind of means the same thing. They do not appreciate the permanency of death. And so, if you want to help them, you, whoever is coming to take over must do it in such a way that they are doing something which we say it is attuned. They are in attunement with the child's emotional kind of feelings. Because children have emotions. So they are in harmony with the child's emotional expressions and experiences. And so when that happens, this child, especially from birth up to six months, they will be able to transition seamlessly. Because even if you are to talk to them about the permanency of death at that age, they will not be able to understand. But then, as children grow, the processing of death of a loved one, especially of a parent, should continue to be discussed. And that is why the aspect of memorials comes in, Andy, for children. 
For us, we may say, oh, no, it's reminding me. I don't want to be reminded. But a child grows understanding as they continue to gain age, they continue to get to know what really happened. Occasionally, we are told, especially at every anniversary of the loss of somebody who is close to us, even we as adults, we experience something. Some memories come. It may be even unconscious. You may not be having a ceremony. But somehow, around that time, when that person died, something happens, and you are reminded, and you kind of relieve those moments. That happens to all of us, even the young ones. And so, they might ask you questions which you are not ready for. And you are like, where did this come from? Because now, at that point in time, they are, they are having the mental capacity to process the information. You can address that at that point in time. I've said uh, infants and preschoolers have little sense of past and the present, and these seem indistinguishable. What about uh, other children, uh, preschoolers and uh, teenagers? Preschoolers. Preschoolers have some understanding. And normally, we kind of process information on the basis of our verbal capabilities. So when a child has not begun to speak, when they do not have the language, when they do not have the words, they will have emotions which they are unable to explain in words or to express. But when they start gaining vocabulary, they can be able to understand a few things here and there. They will ask questions, and those questions need to be answered. But because of what we ourselves have been cultured to think is the right thing, we tend to prohibit children from discussing issues of death. We, we, we feel no, we are giving them too much, we are hurting them, but that is not the reality. When we are actually hiding in quotes, because when you don't tell them, they become more curious. They, what is this you are hiding? So they go and search from elsewhere, and you don't know what information they are going to get. So when they ask questions, answer them briefly as a matter of fact. Now let me surprise you or tell you something you already know. Children do not understand the concept of going to heaven. So when you are telling them somebody who has died has gone to heaven, when you go to the market, you come back. So if somebody goes, they expect that, that person to come back. And so if you tell them, daddy, mommy went to heaven, they are expecting that person to come back. And so you would rather use the actual words, so and so died. And when somebody dies, they don't come back. You may not give details. We are told that those rites of burying are very crucial in helping young ones understand the permanency of death. And so, during burials, let them see what is happening. Don't send them away to go and play where they are not seeing what is happening. Let them see we have put the body of our daddy in this casket and we have buried it here. And he is not going to come back. Just that. That, that will be enough for them to understand at that point in time. Now, when loss 
of a loved one is not addressed, especially now for those uh, preschoolers and early teenage, when it is not addressed, the child are more likely to experience parental child conflict, behavioral problems, and externalizing behaviors as they grow up. What does this mean? A child is struggling with deep-seated emotions which they are unable to express. And so they will act them out. And they will act them out in a manner which is not appropriate according to the moral standing of the society. And that is why you find these children, they are hyperactive. They are doing things which they are not supposed to do at that particular point in that given setting. For example, in a classroom, you have a child who is uh, not waiting for their turn to answer questions. Maybe they are all over the place. They are standing and running around the class when they are expected to be seated. You know, that kind of thing. Or they are having an oppositionality. They defy authority figures. Whatever the teacher tells them, they don't agree with it. At home, they don't obey any instructions. Or as they grow up, they may start being promiscuous. They may start being against in petty theft. Those are externalizing behaviors. They are expressing the heart within them. That is what psychology tells us. But what do we do when children burn schools and those kind of things? We tell the police, take care of them. We don't solve the problem. It began a long time ago, and it needs to be corrected. So those are externalizing behaviors which we are likely to see. So what is our role when a child has been left? Whoever steps in may not fit in the shoes, but we can help them. Assist the primary caregiver to remain attuned and responsive to the child. Because maybe whoever is taking over has not been in the parenting role at another time. So help them to understand what it takes. And this is where the aspect of being, you know, trained a bit comes in. Because you may not know what to do. And traditionally, what we think is the best may be doing more harm than good. Provide support and respite to enable the caregiver's optimal functioning. Now, I've been plugged into taking a new role. The new role is strange to me. The demands of this new child are overwhelming to me. I need to be supported. I need to be helped so that I can become a better helper to the child. Revisit the loss with the child's growing emotional vocabulary and ability to reason at higher levels of abstraction. That is what I was saying. Have memorials. Have memorials with these children every year as they continue to grow so that they can rework the laws, they can understand the laws. I have an example here which I picked from one of the literature. And Mr. M.M., after the loss of his father at the age of three, he still struggled in young adulthood to find the emotional vocabulary for his loss. This is somebody who lost the father at the years. They are now young adults. And they are finding it difficult to get the words to express how emotionally they felt and how emotionally they are feeling now concerning the loss of their father. Allow me to move fast because of time. Children at the age of 9 to 11 
How do they react to laws of a parent or somebody close to them? They will react by being aggressive or they will withdraw. And they find more comfort in their peers. So from nine all the way to teenage, they find comfort in their peers. So you find them spending more time with the members of their age group. And this age group of theirs will become more useful if there are some of them who have experienced a similar loss. They are likely to identify with that kind of a person. And so if you are, pre, if, if you are organizing for this age group to deal with loss, getting a group kind of a set up will be more useful than doing the individual counseling. Children are consistently found to envision deceased parents in ways that continue the parents' presence in their lives and actively maintain uh, their connections in several ways. For example, they will try to locate the deceased parent in heaven. They might kind of be experiencing the deceased in their life. Like, my dead mother is watching me. My dead father is watching me, that kind of thing. And you want them to do something and they disagree because their father, their mother is watching them. Remembering, actively remembering the, the dead by maybe getting articles and artifacts associated with the dead, those kind of behaviors, they are normal for this person because they are trying to locate and identify with the parent. I'm going to finalize by talking about when a parent loses a child and when a, a spouse loses a spouse. Now we have what we call assumptive world, our assumptive world view. We have been told that uh, children should outlive their parents. Right? That is our world. That is how things should happen. And so even when we read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, a time and a season for everything. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. Yes, but... We have been culturized and we believe it so much and we can quote scripture which is going to support what we believe that a child should not die before a parent. So what happens when a child dies before the parent? The world of this parent is turned upside down. We may not have words to explain the kind of emotional turmoil the parent is going through. And so, this applies for all manner of children. Whether the child was deformed, whether the child was uh, a criminal, a child is a child. And so, when a parent loses a child, their world comes crumbling down because of what we are calling the assumptive. We have our assumptions of how the world ought to look like and how the world ought to operate. And so even when we are believing God, even when we are praying, we pray in accordance 
to our assumptive world. Praise be to God. And so when things happen contrary to that assumptive world, we get really shaken. And so when you are condoling a parent who has lost a child, it is not as easy as it might look like. Because we may say they are of age. After all, they understand death. No, they don't understand the death of their own child. They might understand the death of somebody else, but not the death of their own child. Why am I saying this? Now, when a child dies, the parent feels that they have not only lost the child, but they have lost in their parental responsibility. It is your responsibility to protect your children as a parent. It is your responsibility to make sure that they have good health. They enjoy life. And so when they die, I feel I have lost. I have failed in my duty and responsibility as a parent. And so this blame, this self-blame is going to hit me up. It is going to really put me down. Because it touches on my competency as a parent. So the self-blame is so much. Couples are often stressed when each parent grieves differently. And this is because of our gender differences. It is a given that women have more social networks and connectedness than men. And so how a woman grieves and the processes, the loss of a child, is not the same way their husband is going to grieve and the process, the same loss. It will become more tragic if this couple starts to blame each other for whatever happened. So you may have a strain in their relationship because of the loss of a child. It won't be difficult for us to identify these strains when we are dealing with the married people who have lost a child. And so we need to handle this with the emotional sensitivity it requires. Now, currently, we find ourselves in a more difficult situation because of the advances in technology. Probably, maybe you have come across websites where we can memorialize our departed. And so you have these websites which will host a departed child. And so every year, we can go to that website and we can present flowers. We can even write messages to the departed and that kind of thing. That presents another challenge to us. Because I don't know how this person is going to process that we are saying this person is alive. They are dead. But according to the website we are using, they are alive. They are seeing what, because sometimes you even go and read and you see, they are apologizing. I've stayed this for so long without writing to you. I've stayed for so long without sending you a card. Now, they are conversing with the dead. And they are believing that this dead person is somehow getting connected. I don't know. So th there are those things now because of technological advancement, which we are going to grapple with as believers. And so we need to ask ourselves. How far should we go with this technology as it were? Now, for these parents, a study was done among those who have lost 
uh, their children and those who have lost their spouses. And they say that they found groups to be more supportive than individual therapy, than being taken on a one-on-one -on -one counseling. They found groups to be more useful. And that is where the church comes in strongly because we are organized in a group. We know ourselves. We know our members. And we can be there to give our brothers and sisters a shoulder to lean on. But then we may find ourselves short because of what we know and what we don't know. And that is where now being facilitated comes in. Gaining some insights in these areas will become more useful as we go on. Because if we want to be pillars, we need to be knowledgeable pillars, not just pillars who are not knowledgeable. Finally, as I wind up, when the children of Israel were taken to captivity, one time they were being jeered by their taskmasters, and they were being told to sing one of the songs of Zion to them. And it is recorded that they hung their harp and they wondered, how could we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? How could we rejoice when we are in pain? How could we rejoice when we are suffering? The Bible encouraging, encourages us that there is hope. There is hope for those who are in the Lord, whether they are alive or dead. And that is the assurance we have, that through it all, God is working in us and through us and with us so that we can be better in the kingdom of God. In the scripture which we have for this uh, day, it is comforting for us to know that God heals the broken-hearted and binds up their wounds. It is comforting to know. But then as David did, you have to go to that place. You have to have fellowship with God. You have to have encounter with him. Surrender to him. Tell him you don't know what to do. It is, yes, it is so painful. You don't know how to handle it. This thing they are calling processing. You have no experience. You even don't know what it means. But God is there for us. And he's inviting us so that he can bind our wounds. He can heal our broken hearts. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and we worship you. Thank you for your word, which is settled forever in the heavens. As we meditate on the things we have gone through, we look at your love, we look at your grace, and we are encouraged. We see how you lifted up your servants who are down, how you lifted up your people who are in captive, how you helped them when they lost their loved ones. Lord God, we are in a time in the world when we are experiencing so much loss through death. 
we have come to an end of ourselves. We do not want to lean on, on our own understanding. We don't want to rely on human wisdom, O oh God. The knowledge we have acquired through books, Lord, is not sufficient to help us to go through these very difficult times we are in. Help us, O oh God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.